This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. Today, I'm joined by Todd Gamblin, who's a computer scientist at the Advanced Technology Office in Livermore Computing at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Todd maintains the incredibly popular package management tool called SPEC and plays a prominent role in the Exascale project. Todd, I have crossed paths with you in several webinars and Slacks and communities, and I'm really excited to have you on RSC Stories. So welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. So before we talk about your software, let's talk about your story. Can you go back to when you were still a student yourself and share with us what got you interested in either programming or high-performance computing and how you wound up working at a national lab? I've been into programming for a long time, since maybe high school or middle school. I was a computer science and Japanese double major in college, and I was a software developer for a year after that in Tokyo, where I worked on kind of web backends for an ad company over there. And then I just decided I wanted to do something a little more scientific or a little more complicated. And so I went back to grad school in computer science. I guess I started out in grad school doing asynchronous digital logic, which is basically chips without clocks. And I decided I wanted to be a little closer to the software than that. I think, you know, you go too far down and you get into hardware land where you spend a lot of effort and you feel like you didn't do very much. I like the malleability of software a lot better. So I ended up in HPC, which is sort of halfway between hardware and software. And I think that's a happy place for me because I get to learn about all the cool hardware things, work with them, but I don't have to design hardware. I worked with Dan Reed at, at UNC while he was still there. He ended up leaving and going to Microsoft, but he was still my advisor, but I started a collaboration with Lawrence Livermore in the meantime. And that ended up working out really well. I worked with Bronis Disipinski here and you know he and, and Martin Schultz kind of adopted me. And so I've been at the lab since. I came out here in 2008 and then I was a postdoc for a year in 2009 and I've been staff since 2010. Awesome. So I had a few questions. What does it mean for a mentor to sort of adopt you? What kind of, can you describe that relationship and, you know, how it could be something that someone pursues or does it sort of happen spontaneously? In this case, it was more like we ended up collaborating on a project. So my thesis was about how to measure lots of performance data from really big machines. We were working on BlueGene L machines back then, which were, I guess, the first machines to have over 100,000 cores. Livermore has some of the biggest machines in the world. They had the original BlueGene L machine. And so it just ended up working out really well. We had weekly meetings, and I felt like I was getting you know, a lot of good feedback from the folks at the lab. So they kind of became my mentors on, on that project. Yeah, that's totally awesome when it happens. I always wonder about these relationships, if they're possible to like figure out if there's an algorithm or formula to make them more common. So holy cow, I heard you a couple sentences back. You said UNC, which is the University of North Carolina. Yep. Were you at UNC Chapel Hill? Yeah, that's right. And you were at Duke, right? Yeah, no, I was about to say, I was literally yeah. like right around the corner. I was at Duke and it was around the same time, although I wasn't doing anything interesting at the time. I was playing World of Warcraft for the most part. So yeah, for those listeners that haven't visited North Carolina, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill is a totally gorgeous school. You did a similar transition to me then. You went from the East Coast to where you are now in the West Coast, correct? Yeah, that's right. Do you miss anything about the East Coast? I grew up in Raleigh and then I went to undergrad in Williams, which is up in Massachusetts. It's a little liberal arts school. 
I miss lots of things about the East Coast. I like New England. I grew up in North Carolina, so I miss some things about North Carolina. I'm pretty happy where I'm at, though. I like the Bay Area. It's been nice moving out here and just and being at, at Livermore close to San Francisco, but also, you know, getting to work at a cool place like a national lab where lots of interesting experiments and giant lasers are. Yeah, you got to follow the giant lasers, that's for sure. <laughs> I asked because my path was similar going from east to west, and I would say something similar that I kind of miss the east coast, but I love things about the west coast, too. I miss I barbecue. Barbe I definitely oh, miss North yeah. Carolina barbecue. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> it, just, it doesn't exist out here. So some of our listeners are probably thinking about their next step for a career, and you have this valuable experience that you've been in sort of an academic role, but now you're at a national lab. Can you tell us about the two kinds of experiences, what you've liked, what you haven't liked, and how you see them to be different? I like the national lab role because it's sort of halfway in between industry and academia. I think I've always been drawn to doing production work. And so even if I'm doing research and, and sort of out on the bleeding edge of something, I want to make it work for people. And I like the fact that I can do that at the labs. They fund both production work and research. And as far as, you know, an academic career, the lab is pretty similar to an academic career in a lot of ways. I came in as a student and I was an intern for about a year. I did a postdoc here. And then when I converted to staff, more of my time was spent doing more production things, but I was still doing research and managing research projects. And in some ways, if your interests are tied to what the lab is interested in, you have more freedom at a lab just because there are funded projects. If you're close to the program, you have some freedom to do what you are interested in at the labs too. So I think it's just a nice blend. I think if I went back to academia, I would miss having all the big machines and the giant computing center that Livermore has and, and just being able to be hands-on with all that stuff. The other thing about working at the lab is it's not just computer scientists. So if I went to industry and worked at a cloud or something like that, it might be a whole lot more straight up programmers than the labs where it's programmers, it's physicists, it's chemists, it's people working on cool simulations, it's people working on COVID vaccines and stuff like that. There's just all kinds of interesting science going on all the time at the labs. And so you learn something new every day. So that's one of the other things I like about it. So now that we're tiptoeing into talking about software, let's talk about SPAC. Okay. How did SPAC come to be? Tell me the story of SPAC. So SPAC started out because I was very angry at software. It's it, <laughs> essentially, I had a student who was working with me and she had seven or 10 different dependencies that she had to build repeatedly on Linux clusters and on BlueJene at Livermore. And so it gets old after a while, right? Like if you want to use someone else's software, you would like to just be able to say, hey, I, I want that package. I would like to use and to have it. But that's not how HPC ever works. Every installation is essentially a port to a new platform because some assumption about your HPC machine is different from whatever the developers of that package assumed. And so it could just be weeks to rebuild her whole stack. So I was sort of like, hey, how hard could it be to write a package manager? I'll just, I'll whip something up and automate these builds. How hard could it be? It's, it turns out <laughs> it's very hard. <laughs> And there's, there's a lot to it, but I think we've been fortunate because we've been able to build a community around, the, around SPAC. And so having a piece of software that all of that effort is sort of centered around, it lets you leverage the effort of other people a lot more easily because there's a concrete thing they can contribute to if they want to tell you how to build something. It's not like sending someone an email that says, here are the 12 install steps. It's like, hey, here, just run this command that I wrote. And if it doesn't work, then file a bug. And I think it's much more easy to collaborate on these things that way than by like writing down build recipes in a wiki like we used to do. How did the community develop over time and how do you see it now? It developed a lot over time. I started in 2013 and back then it was just me 
working on the tool, we started to get some internal contributors from Livermore Computing from the Compute Center. And we started having a weekly phone call, which I think is really how we started getting our initial collaborators. We had a mailing list and a weekly phone call, and it was kind of cool because we just opened up the phone call to anyone. We would send it out to the mailing list, and people would just show up on the call and say, hey, I was trying this list back, and you know, I had some questions. And so just doing that, it seemed like it brought people into the community and made them feel like they had kind of a direct line to us. And they felt like, you know, even if it was early software, they could at least ask us questions. And so that was good. Further along, we wrote up an SC paper about SPAC and presented that in like 2015. And I think it was really after that that we got kind of broad visibility and people said, hey, oh, this, this is useful. We started getting lots and lots of contributions sort of in late 2015, early 2016. And it's just been sort of growing from there. So I think around that time, we had maybe 300 packages in the mainline and SPAC, and now we have over 4,100 that have been contributed mostly by other people. So that's pretty cool. Do you ever see the package recipes making the repo too big so you'll have sort of the monolithic repo problem? Not really. They certainly comprise most of the commits. So, you know, if you want to look at history and can be a bit of a pain to differentiate core from packages, but I think we benefit in some ways from having an active repo because it sort of gets you more attention on GitHub. Like if you have more things going on in your repo or it's focused on one thing, people notice that it gets starred, it gets sort of broadcast out to other parts of GitHub. And like we show up on trending Python every once in a while, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's super cool. That's, yeah. that's like a really big deal. I asked this question to Kenneth Hoste, who is the creator of EasyBuild. And it's only fair that I ask you, how is SPAC different from EasyBuild? I think the philosophy of the two tools is pretty different. EasyBuild is very focused on fixing exact versions. Their recipes say, you know, you want to build version 1.2.2 of this thing, then you build exactly this recipe and it depends on exactly these other versions of other things. SPAC is different in that we actually do dependency resolution. We call it concretization because there's a lot of different attributes that we're setting. The user can say, hey, install boost, and we'll go and fill in the blanks for you and we'll say, okay, we want to build it for this architecture, we want to use this compiler, we want to use this compiler version, these versions of dependencies, and so on. And so if you want to change something with your recipe in SPAC, you can much more easily say, build me a different version of this package, and we'll resolve all the constraints and solve that problem. Whereas with EasyBuild, you would probably have to copy a whole bunch of easy configs and tweak each one individually. That's the core of it. I think the other difference is the, the target audience. So EasyBuild, it's designed for cluster administrators primarily. And so it's for people who want to deploy large module systems on their HPC machines. And so it's also very based on modules. So you need modules to run EasyBuild. You can't build without them. They actually use modules internally to do all their builds. Whereas SPAC is kind of separate from that. We're trying to target a broader audience. We're targeting facility admins, which is definitely one of our original audiences. It was built partially for Livermore Computing, where we deploy software with it. We're also targeting developers. And so the flexible versions are pretty helpful for developers because they often want to run the bleeding edge version of something without messing with a lot of configs. And then just for regular users, we found that across all of those different areas, at least on HPC systems, people tend to want to run some pretty exotic versions of things, or they may need to just to get something working. And so the extra flexibility and the fact that SPAC has like templated packages instead of very fixed ones helps, and that, that's the main difference. So SPAC is heavily tied to HPC. So let's look a little bit into sort of trends and the future, and I'm wondering how you see, if you see at all, that SPAC will be a player when it comes to sort of cloud native technologies. So mm -hmm. what could SPAC look like in, I don't know, 20 years? In shorter term than that, I would say we'd, we'd really like to have binaries available, which is another difference between SPAC and EasyBuild, by the way. SPAC actually does binary installations. 
we're trying to build infrastructure so that you could very easily and very quickly install a stack of dependencies that happens to be pre-built for your architecture. I think that's really good for cloud. You could basically spin up a cloud node and rapidly install all of your dependencies with SPAC and have them customized to your setup or whatever architecture your node is pretty easily. Or you could build a container with SPAC and deploy that. One of the nice things about having templated packages is that eventually once we get the builds a little more stable across all these different environments, you could make a portable environment with SPAC. So if you want to run your application on like a Power9 node, an ARM node, and an x86-64 node, and compare what kind of performance you get across those three, ideally, in the long run, we'd like to have it so that you could take one SPAC environment and have the same environment deployed and built in a optimized way for all three of those platforms without a lot of hassle. It could be a normalizer for cloud applications, like even in the native regime, right? Like if you think about the way that cloud is going for web applications, like they're introducing ARM nodes and, and it's great for web stacks and things that are written in like JavaScript because you don't care what the architecture is. All you need is node installed on your node and you can run a JavaScript application because it's interpreted. But for the native stuff, it's been harder for people to move. And so if we could do something similar there where we give people the latitude to kind of move between different instance types in the cloud, they could pretty easily pick their node architecture for their application based on which one performs the best. And ideally we'd like to make that not as much of an issue to switch between things because we're making the same software stack available in all those places. I am totally on board with that vision. I've had so many use cases, whether it's like a personal project or something that I'm working on where I've wanted to sort of bring up a base and install software. Right now, there's no like single thing that you can use to do that. You know, the strategies that I've seen are like, okay, well, we'll provide these mm -hmm. core bases and, you know, people probably want to use Python or R, so we'll provide those. But then really when it, then you want to install packages. And actually, when I first started, I contributed a little bit to SPAC back in the day. That was the first thought that I had. I'd love to be able to just run this to bring up whatever node that I would want on the cloud. So I really hope we get to that future point because it's totally be awesome. That would be pretty cool. Have you seen the Harvard guys who published this paper about running GSChem in AWS HPC? They, no, they have a I whole haven't. They have a whole paper that, that talks about their SPAC setup and basically how they use the binary caches to make it quick to spin up a cluster and deploy their application. You know, it's not cross-platform, at least not that I know of the way that they're doing it, but it's reproducible. So they can fire up a large instance of, I don't know, Cascade-like nodes and deploy their binary caches that are optimized for that with SPAC. So we've talked a little bit about SPAC. Are there other lesser known libraries that you've created or are contributing to that you think would be highly useful, but people haven't really discovered them yet? Yeah, so I guess on the same note as what I was just talking about, we spun a library called ArcSpec out of SPAC. And so if you go to github.com slash ArcSpec, there's a GitHub project for it. Essentially, that's the library that we wrote to auto-detect node architectures. And, and by that, I mean, like you can type uname and get x86-64 or ppc64le or whatever on your node. But that tells you the family of architecture. It doesn't tell you the microarchitecture. And you generally want to know, at least for HPC stuff, specifically what generation of chip you're using. And so if you use ArcSpec, you can say, what kind of chip is this? And it'll say Skylake or Haswell or Cascade Lake or something like that instead of just x86-64. And so the idea there is we want to be able to give people the metadata that they need to label optimized binaries. And that includes things like containers in addition to just binary packages. I think that's pretty poorly understood or at least pretty poorly supported by tooling in the package ecosystems right now. Like if you look for RPMs, right, and you want to find one that's optimized for a Skylake machine, you kind of have to know that your machine is a Skylake and which thing you need for it. 
And you can't ask like, hey, is this binary that I got from the cloud actually compatible with my architecture? And so people tend to have a hard time distributing optimized versions of their code. Have you seen the TensorFlow community wheels GitHub project where yes. the, yeah. And so someone was like, hey, the way that we're gonna distribute TensorFlow wheels is if you make a build of it for some architecture, then say that you made the build and put an issue in this project. And if you look at the list of issues, there's like hundreds of them. And it's like, I built this for Skylake with AVX 512 and SSE 3 and this other feature and this other feature and this other feature. And you actually have to read a list to figure out what things are available and then decide whether it's actually compatible with your machine. I'd like to get away from that and just have the tool say, you need this binary. This is the best one available for you. So that's what ArcSpec is designed to do. We use it in SPAC right now to label all the builds so you know what microarchitecture you were built for. But the goal is really to make it available for the container ecosystem. And it's a Python library now, but we're working on Go bindings for it to make that easier. I think it's really cool how your background that sort of spans between hardware and HPC to software sort of comes out in these projects because you look at things from a specific perspective that you only have if you've worked with hardware before and that sort of thing. So on that note, can you talk about how you see yourself? I mean, superficially, I'd say, oh, Todd is a research software engineer, but I'm interested to know how you define a research software engineer and how you consider yourself in that role. So I guess it's that was an interesting thing about being on this podcast. I have never really thought of myself as an RSE. I have sort of wondered whether I'm a researcher or a software engineer. So maybe that does mean that I'm an RSE. So my background is I started my career in, as a software engineer in industry. And I think that I've always liked writing code. I tend to like code better than writing papers, to be really honest. But, you know, I do a lot of both. I think in projects that I've done, I've always tried to have a large software component because I'm just not happy if I'm not writing some code. So yeah, I'd say I'm sort of halfway in between. And these days, I also have some like leadership components to my role. So I'm in the advanced technology office in Livermore Computing. I actually moved out of CAST last August. And so I work with the procurement teams on machines that we're bringing in. And I'm kind of the software guy in that group. And so I'm responsible for thinking about the software ecosystem on our future machines, how we would actually deploy software, how the code teams can use software on our future machines. I think I've always sort of straddled both research and software. So if you look at all these different kinds of RSEs or engineers or computer scientists that span across national labs, academic institutions, industry, aside from open source software, how can we better work together? Or maybe open source software is this key thing. So how can RSEs work better together across lots of different projects? Exactly. I mean, I like the open source argument. I think it really depends on what kind of RSE you are, though, because in past podcasts, we've talked about like RSEs who might be attached to one particular research group or have something very specific to that project to implement, right? It's not always practical to start a large open source project for the long term when you're in that situation. But I do think in general, if the RSE community could think more about what open source projects are necessary, you could get a lot of leverage out of having shared infrastructure like that. I think it's particularly important for RSEs because they tend to be more siloed than maybe industry teams would be, or maybe like a code team in a national lab would be. So having that collaboration there, to have any kind of inertia behind the project, you need something collaborative like that. To sustain things, I think focusing on open source projects and building communities around them would be a really good direction for RSEs to go. But I don't think it should be the only direction because there are people who can't do that or it might not be the best thing for them. Yeah, and to a point that you made earlier, because there are so many different kinds of clusters and institutions, and essentially everyone's operating on their own special snowflake, that it makes collaboration even more challenging. Yeah, exactly. It makes the tools harder to build. 
I mean, I think that's one thing with back that I think we've noticed is most of the mainstream package managers, they make a bunch of simplifying assumptions up front about like your environment or your stack or what compiler you're going to use or you know, just some things that make the whole ecosystem compatible. Whereas we never have that luxury in HPC. And that's probably the case for a lot of people in academia, because when you're doing bleeding edge research, you have bleeding edge environments. I do think that makes it harder to collaborate on things. You just have a much more complicated set of requirements up front for research software than you necessarily do for industry where you can pick your you know, mainstream market platform. Yeah. And it also adds to the lovely little bit that there's always lots of challenging things to work on though. So yes. yeah, it's a trade-off. <laughs> We're coming up on time. I have just a few more questions. Let's zoom ahead to when you're old and gray. What will having had a successful career look like to you? I would all like to have built a few things that had an impact. It feels really good to have started this SPAC community because, I mean, I think it has helped people across HPC. I think just building more things like that. I think I would, I would like to have built something else in addition to SPAC that makes a difference. And then I'll be pretty happy. Awesome. And finally, what do you like to do when you aren't programming or writing papers or leading people or being diabolical? So I have a little two and a half year old daughter and we just had another one. So I hang out with my kids. That's awesome. Todd, it was so great to chat with you. I'm grateful that I'm able to help out with SPAC, even if only a tiny little bit, because I really like and appreciate the community that has grown around it. And this, again, to quote Kenneth Hoste, this is definitely one package manager that I don't want to make cry. So <laughs> thank you for being on RSE Stories today. All right, thanks for having me. And thanks for the contributions.